0: Good morning once again, if you would open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 11 through 18, chapter two, eleven through 18. You know, um, when we moved here to, to, and started this church, one of the things we wanted to um, instill into the teaching and the preaching and the, the life of our church is the reality that faith isn't really a simple thing, it's not necessarily a leap of faith that you take as a Christian, um, the gospel really is challenging, and I know a number of you here are kind of processing the gospel. You would probably say, "I'm not quite there yet," but um, something is intriguing me, or something in my life is causing me to look at Christ maybe in a, a little bit different way. Um, you know, it, the, the gospel is a is a challenging gospel. It takes us to the very core of some of the uh, some of the beliefs that we hold. Um, close and dear and it challenges us to maybe lay those aside and to ponder Christ in a new and, and powerful way and, and ponder ourselves in a really new and powerful way. And what we saw last week, was kind of a challenging message, but what we saw last week is that all humanity has a problem that we share and that is that the problem is we are dead. We are dead spiritually until God makes us alive in Christ. And that challenges a lot of our cultural belief systems today. Today, we're going to look at another problem that we all share as human beings, and that is not one of death, but one of alienation, that we are all alienated from God and God's people, that is, until Christ draws us near. A good question to be thinking through this morning is, has Christ brought me near to God and God's people? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 18. we far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is the word of God. The grass wither, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us this word, uh, a challenging word, but a word that that, um, does bring peace to us, a word that does cause us to be united as one people. We pray, Holy Spirit, the spirit of peace, that you would be with us as we contemplate what you'd have us learn here this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'm sure most all of you are familiar with uh, John Lennon's uh, song, the the lyrics to Imagine, right? Imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. We're all familiar with that melodic song of John Lennon, and uh, perhaps it's maybe in your iTunes on some playlist or that. Please note, first off, uh, I I like John Lennon, I like the Beatles, I grew up listening to the Beatles, probably listened to the White Album a little too much. (laughs) You know, number nine, number nine, what is that? I still don't know. But anyway... as with all art and popular culture, it reflects um, the thoughts and beliefs and the concerns and, and the issues of that time period, especially by the, the youth in our culture. And so what this song, Imagine, challenges people to do is to picture a world without countries and economic differences and without what he sees as the cause for alienation and hostility in the world, religion. See, in his mindset, and many people kind of bought into this, and some people still hold this to this day, is that peace would only come at the, with the end of all religion. Now, those of you who are historians of the 20th century, you know that that's not true. Um, the 20th century was filled with um, great uh, wars and murders, all done in the, in the name of of getting away from religion. You look at Hitler and Stalin and Mao. These were all atheistic regimes that were sought to, to free mankind from the shackles of religious systems. And, and, and from those three um, men alone, over 100 million people were killed in the 20th century. A lot of times some of my atheistic friends, they want to argue with me that religion starts all these wars. I'm like, eh, 20th century proves you wrong, my friend. Uh, yes, we as Christians need to really repent and apologize for the, for the crusades and the Spanish Inquisition and the Salem witch trials and those things, but it's the, the 20th century has shown us that it's not the end of all religions that's going to bring peace. Now, something that's more common today—it's kind of getting a, uh, uh, being fanned to the flame of our popular culture—is it's not so that the end of religion that's going to bring peace, but rather the blend of all religions will bring peace. You see it in the tolerance bumper stickers with uh, the various religious symbols there. I'm all for tolerance. We should tolerate each other. But the idea is that if we just blend all these religions together, then we will have peace. It's the belief that all of these top religions in the world are really uh, different paths that lead up the same mountain all to the same God. I don't have enough time really to go into how that really cannot be true, but that's the belief of many people today. Now, my past seminary president, uh, Brian Chappell, and he was my homiletics professor, that's a fancy way of saying preaching, my preaching professor, excellent, amazing man, he, he, I'm, I'm indebted to him on this. He says, neither the end of religion nor the blend of religion, but rather the blood of Jesus Christ removes the barriers between all people and brings true peace on earth. That's what we're going to look at here this morning. In our passage, Paul tells us the re- of a reality that's taken place. In verse 13, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Alienation, separation, hopelessness, hostilities, all remedied in Christ Jesus. What we're going to see this morning that the gospel brings peace, but not just peace For people who are in Christ Jesus, but peace between people who are a part of Christ's body. Paul uses an example of two hostile people, Jews and Gentiles, and how they've been made one in Christ Jesus. And from this reality, we too, as God's people, are to experience peace together as God's people. You know, in Ephesus, uh, as, in, as in Ephesus, there's walls of divisions can easily creep into the culture, into any church body. Barriers can be based on, on race and age and education and blue-collar versus white-collar uh, income levels, doctrinal beliefs, local versus city people, uh, north of the highway people versus south of the highway people, uh, and you name it, right? If we're to flourish as Christ's body, we need to, to be at peace with each other through the gospel. That's what we're going to look at. And we're going to divide our time into two areas. We're going to look at the past and the present. The past and the present. First, the past. You know, twice in our text, Paul, in the English text, Paul says, remember. Why would he focus so much uh, attention on us remembering? Well, because we so easily... Forget, we're a people who need to be reminded over and over. Paul speaks to the Ephesians and us, and he says, Remember, remember your past. Remember where you came from. And as in doing so, he wants us to see two things the state of our past and the consequences of our past. Um, The nature or state of our past is in in verse eleven. He says, Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, uh, which is made in the flesh by hands. And what is he getting at? Well, Paul's getting at what we, really an underlying sore spot relationally between two people groups. Back at that time in that place, there was only two groups of people. There was Jew and there was Gentile, people near to God and people far from God. And God gave his people a sign called circumcision, a cutting of the flesh to mark them off as his treasured people. But this had become a dividing wall within within the church body. See, Jewish people in in Paul's day were quite prideful and full of hostility and contempt towards the Gentiles. They, they, re, they, re, they, they went towards name-calling. Now, what was the name? They, they called him, they called him, The uncircumcision. You know, I don't know if those are like fighting words today. They don't, you know, they don't sound like, you know, scumbag or scoundrel or anything, you know, but that's the word back then, the uncircumcision. And the name calling went both ways. An ancient historian named Josephus speaks of the Gentiles laughing at the circumcision of Jewish men. Another historian, Philo, writes that Jews were often ridiculed because of it. See the hostility that's between these two people groups? But the prideful Jews and the ridiculing Gentiles were both wrong about circumcision. Circumcision was instituted by God in a good and a holy way to mark his people off as as his people. These are my treasured people. God spoke to Abraham. He said, Abraham, out of you I'm going to build a mighty nation. All the families of the world will be blessed by you. And this is the sign that you belong to this blessed community. The problem was they lost track of the fact that, that the, their circumcision on the outside was meant to have one on the inside, as well as a, as a love for neighbor and love for Gentiles. God's purpose, was, though, was that these people would bless the world. That's the past. They were, they were separated and far off. And so to us, before we experience, and experience this redemptive work of God through the cross not for the consequences of the past. Verse 12, we see five different consequences that these Gentile people experienced, and us as well. Uh, Most of us here were Gentiles, right? So um, most of us, a number of us, weren't raised in the church. But um, see if you pick up on, on, on verse 12. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. That's a lot. He's saying, remember that you were one time separated from Christ. Now, the word, our English word Christ is a translation of the Greek word Christos, which itself is a translation of the Hebrew word meaning Messiah. Paul is reminding them be, that because of their birth situation, they were born outside of, of this covenant family, that, that, that they weren't born into, uh, they, were, they were separated from Christ, from the promise of the Messiah to come that enlivened the Jewish community in Paul's day. They were also alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. and to be, to be alienated is to be isolated and, and vulnerable. Um, the Ephesians were, were isolated and vulnerable in their, in their cultural system, in their government system. And in Israel, God had, God had given Israel laws and, and ways to worship and, and ways to be merciful. And he had given it to his people so that as they lived out life in community, it would reflect the grace and the glory of the God who had called them. And, and they had that. All right, I oh, know they failed at many times in that, but that's that's the picture. But those who lived in the Greco-Roman culture, uh, they didn't they, they lived with great anxiety and fears. There wasn't um, there wasn't um, much of hope for a widow or an orphan in that type of society. It's kind of like in America, you know, people people who are coming from from um, dict- dictatorial countries where there's no, no freedom. They're, they want to flee to America because we, we have laws that provide for, for human rights and, and for, for ways in which um, people are cared for. There's justice. People want to be here. The, the, by birth, the, the Gentiles didn't have that. They are also strangers to the covenants of promise. What does this mean? Well, well God is a covenant. God, if you've been around our church very long, we talk about covenants every now and then. Uh, A covenant is not a contract. Covenants are relational agreements that two parties enter into for the mutual benefit of each other. And they stay in these arrangements even if the other party fails. That's why marriage is a covenant. Uh, these people are a, a covenant people. They've experienced God's covenants towards them. There's really one big covenant, a covenant of God's grace. Uh, but when we see it, we see it in in uh, Adam, a covenant given to Noah and to Abraham and to Moses and to David. These covenants were renewed with Joshua and Ezra and Nehemiah. And then through the prophets, God God foretold of the time when there was a a new covenant coming with the Redeemer, the Messiah. So these were covenant people. He's saying you guys were strangers to the covenant promises. And then saying they having no hope. You know, without a Messiah, without these covenants, there, there really was a hopeless situation for the Gentiles, and without God in the world. That's the situation that they're in. They were literally were without God. The Greek word here is a theoi uh, it means without God. Uh, Atheoi is the Greek word from we get our English word atheist. Uh, he's saying, You Greeks were atheists. You're without God. Um, now they had a lot of gods, right? They had an awful lot of gods in the Greek and the Roman uh, pantheon of uh, deities. In fact, it was the Greeks and the Romans who would belittle and make fun of the Jews and later Christians, and they call them a theoi. You guys are, are without God. Why would they say that? Why would they call the Jews atheists? Well, because their temple was empty. There was no figure in there. There's no statue of Zeus or Apollo. So it's funny that the Greeks and the Romans thought that the Jews and later the Christians were a theoi. But Paul is saying, no, you are the ones without God. So it's quite a situation. Paul says, remember your past. Remember your status. Remember your circumstances. You were hopeless. You were far off from God. And that should cause us to think this morning. Think think for yourself. For those of you who are are still kind of pondering Christ, uh, do you see yourself as separated from the Messiah? Do you see yourself as being cut off from his people of hope? Do you see yourself um, without God? For those of you who are Christians here this morning, there's a number of you, it's important to remember that there was a time in your past when you were far from God and without hope, cut off from the promises. But that's the past reality, Paul says. Now for the present. In verse 13, Paul brings us into the present. He wants us to see our present identity. We read these powerful words, but now. Verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The alienation from God and from God's people is over. Once you were in the flesh, but now you're in Christ Jesus. Once you were hopelessly far away from God, but now you've been brought in. It's special language here. You are now included in the body of Christ, recipients of her hope and her peace. You know, Jesus on his last week, he was heading into Jerusalem and he was overlooking Jerusalem and this image came to his mind and he shared it with those who were following with him. He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing for us though the but now means that we have been brought in under Christ's wing we have been brought in to him and when we're gathered close to him we're not just gathered close to him but we're gathered close to each other this letter to the Ephesians is a, is a lot about understanding our identity, not as individuals, but as the body of Christ and what that looks like and how we live and, and share in life together. That's why I'm excited about this, this letter and studying at Grace Church because uh, i got a lot to learn. We all have a lot to learn on, on, on how we are one body in Christ. We've been brought in by him. And how is this union brought about? Paul says, by the blood of Christ. <laughs> That's kind of odd. Usually when blood is spilt, a war ensues. But in this case, the opposite happens. Christ's blood is spilt and peace comes to us. I challenge us here in this room just to kind of look around. Every one of your brothers and sisters here is someone who at one point was far off but now has been brought near by the same blood of Christ that has cleansed you. I know maybe you had some sour business relationship in the past. I know maybe somebody here might not have appreciated your work as much as you would like them to have done. I know perhaps there's some animosity, but you need to understand, look around. Everybody in this room who belongs to Christ was once far off, but has now been brought near by the blood of Christ. We share in this reality together. And the blood of Christ, that just brings peace to to us uh, uh, from him as one-on-one but it brings peace to us as his people we've been brought near by the blood of Christ you know, each one of you has not been treated as your sins deserved each one of you has been accepted despite your brokenness and though each one of us has not lived up to the people we know we should be in Christ Jesus we have been cleansed in the blood of Christ and we have peace with God and therefore should have peace with each other That's your present identity. Now for our present peace. You know, God's answer to the world's need for peace isn't the end of religion or the blend of religion, but the blood of a person, his divine son. Paul shows us why Jesus is our only hope for peace. I know that might challenge some people, but this is what he shows us. In verse 14, Do you see Paul is emphatic there. He says, for he himself is our peace meditate on this for a moment jesus didn't come to teach you peace jesus came to give you himself he is our peace you know the world will say that peace will come when we become more intellectually enlightened, that peace will come when more people just start living civilized lives, like me, you know. You know, John Lennon's song, imagine, you know, uh, it actually is divisive. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you will join us, and the world will live as one. We have the answer on this side of the wall. If you would just recognize that and come over here, everything would be better. Do you see that? The gospel doesn't offer you some program or, you know, it offers you a person. It offers you Jesus Christ. He himself is our peace and in verses 14 through 18 Paul show, or 17 Paul teaches that Christ's blood brings peace between people and Christ's blood brings peace between his people and God first peace between people Paul says that Jesus himself is our peace now what is the our peace he's referring to is he referring to our peace that we have with God no that's not what he's getting at he's talking about our peace refers to the peace amongst God's people how do we know that look at what he says in verse 14 for he himself is our peace who has made us both one who has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two so making peace our peace is our peace as human beings here on this earth. Christ has come and, 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 and conquered the the dividing wall. He's torn it down. No. Perhaps one of the greatest walls of hostilities of the modern era was the Berlin Wall. It was erected in, in 1962 by the East Germans, the Communists. They put a, a wall around, the, uh, around East Berlin, and, and here's the reason that what they said, and in the, in, during that year, the propaganda brochures said this, that they, the wall was necessary to limit Neo-Hitlerites, youth poisoners and currency racketeers which were coming from the West. But, in reality, the Berlin Wall put up a wall of hostility that kept the East Germans from experiencing freedom. Thankfully, in the fall of one thousand nine hundred and eighty nine the wall was was broken down. Paul here is saying that there 's a great wall of, of hostility that was once between Jew and Gentile. What is that dividing wall? Well, scholars kind of toss around a number of ideas on what the dividing wall is. I'm going to give us kind of what I think are two. Maybe it's kind of two together, really. The dividing wall can be seen, if you were to go to the temple, there was a dividing wall at the temple. The temple had a place for Gentiles, but it was on the outside. It was only on the inner levels, uh, inner, inner parts of the sanctuary. There was a big wall around it. It kept the Gentiles away, but that's where the Jews went further in, closer. Uh, the Gentiles were literally far off, and the Jews were closer. Now, Josephus uh, recalls that there's, um, that there's 13 inscriptions in stone around that wall warning the Gentiles not to enter under penalty of death if they were to go in there. Next week we see that the body of Christ is a temple. So I think that that imagery is probably appropriate. And we know that Jesus also brings his people all the way in to God. As, the, as when Jesus was hanging on the, on the cross and when he died, what did we read earlier? The, that the temple curtain was, was torn from top to bottom. Free access for all, Jew and Gentile alike, by the sacrifice of Christ. But we also see that some of these Old Testament laws were the dividing wall. Um, Paul talks about the abolishing the law uh, of commandments expressed in ordinances. He's not talking about the moral law like the Ten Commandments. Those are timeless. Those will always be. But God gave his people for a time some laws, ceremonial laws and civil laws, uh, laws uh, such as circumcision and dietary laws and certain Sabbath restrictions that he gave to his people to mark them off and to set them aside as his people. But the Jewish people became prideful of these, of these special laws that God had given. And it became a big wall of hostility between them and their neighbors. Paul says that the cross has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. You know, it's one thing to break down a wall or to break up a fight. But it's a totally other thing to bring those two parties together as one. That's what Christ has done. Verse 14, Paul writes that Christ has made us both one. That's in verse 14. Verse 15, he says, Christ gave his flesh on the cross so that he might create, check this out, in himself one new man in the place of two. The gospel brings about a new humanity. Please understand what God has done. He's not homogenizing like milk, you know? He's not taking two and putting them in a blender and making them one. This isn't two being blended into one. This is something new. One new man in the place of two. And we see that, check this out, that Christ has brought them both where? Into himself. (laughs) The gospel brings people into Christ. Paul says in verse 15, so that he might create in himself one new man. A few weeks ago, we were looking at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, where we read, that, we read there that Jesus is the head of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all things. Both Jew and Gentile were one new creation as, as the body of Christ, and he's the head. See, both the Jews in their circumcision and the, and the Gentiles in their uncircumcision were, were saved by grace. There's no distinction. They both depended upon the body and the blood of their Savior, and so too us. Really, the problem that separates all humanity is, really, it's our sin. Christ has come to, to put away our sin he cleanses us from sin. He tears down, he tears down the dividing wall of hostility and he unites us into one people, the church. The, the, the cross of Christ is God's solution for our hostility towards each other. See, because the cross, <clears throat> Jesus brings us up into himself. There's no longer Jew or Gentile or slave or free or male or female. There's no longer rich or poor or black or white. No longer locals or or city people. We're all one in Christ Jesus. The cross unites the ununitable. Nothing else can do that. Verses 14 and 15 show us that the blood of Christ brings peace between people. Verse 16 shows us that the blood of Christ brings us peace with God. You know, in our modern Western culture, uh, I don't know if any of you are from Other cultures where things are more communal. Uh, But in our modern Western American culture, salvation for the Christian is often highly individualized. We've talked about this before. And this letter to the Ephesians really wants to shatter that understanding in our minds. We we often think uh, that we as individuals place our faith in Christ and our relationship is purely vertical without much horizontal, right? This can be illustrated if you were to try to picture in your mind all of us here and you sitting there. If you have peace with God, you have his salvation. What if that were like a string? A string wrapped around your waist. Where would it be connected? Most people's minds think it's going to be connected up to heaven, up to Jesus, right? There's nothing really wrong with seeing it that way. But Paul shows us something different. Uh, Not an Americanized version of salvation. The picture he shows us here is this. Your string is attached to to all the other brothers and sisters here in this room. It creates a messy web (laughs) of salvation. You, You are connected to everybody here and to each other. And then out of that body is one string that goes towards heaven to Christ. I know for some of you are like, no, that can't be right. Well, that's what we see here. Verse 16. Well, let me begin partway through verse 15 that he may create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and he and might reconcile us both to God in one body, the, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. If you are saved, you are saved because Christ has brought you into his body. And he is our head. You know, in a few chapters, in chapter 5 of Ephesians, um, this it's going to be kind of a tricky part to preach through but there's a part where where Paul writes husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her Christ died for his body of which you are a part of he loves her blemishes and all Christ has done this by killing the hostility between us as God's people and God. You know, as much hostility as there is on earth between human beings and and each other, the greatest hostility is between man and God. Martin Lloyd-Jones observes that all the minor and secondary divisions and separations and quarrels among men are ultimately due to the fact that all men are separated from God. As we saw last week, it's kind of a tough one, but all human beings are, are born separated from God and are children of wrath, deserving his punishment. But on the cross, Christ cleansed us. He's taken our sins, and, and he's given us his righteousness all through his blood. So Christ put to death the hostility that is between us and God. That should be a comfort for the church. that Christ has killed it. Did you see the language there? Killing the hostility. <laughs> He's not just like tasering it, you know, you know, gets up and walks around again. He's killed the hostility. Vivid, harsh language, but that's what we need to see. The hostility between us as God's people and God has been killed. He sees you, each and every one of you is, is beautiful and cleansed as part of his of his body. So my friends, there could be no peace apart from the cross. I'm not saying that people who don't believe in God or Jesus can't be peaceable people. We shouldn't be surprised when that happens. But I would say that all peace points to the cross and all peace is a reflection of the cross. The fact that we lack peace points to the cross. The fact that we lack peace It means that, that we are a people who are full of hostilities and anger and bitterness and rivalries and dissensions. And we need forgiveness from God and from each other. And the times where we do succeed in making peace on earth, those times point to the cross too, because they're but a pale reflection of the peace and reconciliation that comes through the cross of Christ. So the cross of Christ is where we're to turn so that we may be agents of peace. When we see how costly Christ's peace was for us, um, we begin to see, we begin to be um, empowered to be costly givers of peace with other people. When we see just how much we have been forgiven, when we see how much grace God has given us in mercy, can we not offer that to our brothers and sisters who are sitting, sitting here around you? The cross facilitates peace. Peace between us and peace with our God. <clears throat> Earlier I quoted from my past seminary president, neither the end of religion nor the blend of religion, but rather the blood of Jesus Christ removes the barriers between all people and brings true peace to the world. That's quite a claim. I don't know where you are. I don't know if you just totally buy into that yet or not. I can kind of get it. You're like saying, well, where's the peace now? The peace has come in Christ. The historical event took place. There was the Son of God uh, hanging on a cross one day. And He bled and He died. Not because He had to, because He wanted to. We needed Him to. It took place. In a radical way, Christ's work on the cross brings us Uh, into his body, cleansed and pure in God's sight. That took place, but I get it. Where's the peace now? Well, there is peace on earth. It's in God's people. It's in his body. As messed up as we are as the church, there is great peace here. I've seen it. I've seen the way in which some of you guys have loved each other through difficult circumstances. There is peace on earth, but I still get it. You're like, but where is it? Ultimately, Ultimately, peace will come on the day in which The Messiah returns. And so that has to be a part of our understanding, a part of our conversation. God promises a day when Christ will return. See, the cross is a guarantee that God has not abandoned this world. Christ didn't just die on the cross. He rose from the dead, which means that God is coming. When he says he's coming back to renew and restore all things, we can believe that. It's not fairy tale. It's not make up gush uh, you, know, j- you know, stuff that's just, that is just uh, pie in the sky. This is real and true. And this is for you if you're in Christ. True and lasting peace will come. And once again, I'm sorry if I'm picking on John Lennon here, guys. I, you know, I hope I don't ruin that song for you. But, um, you know, he says, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, uh, below us. Above us only sky. Imagine all the people. Living for today. He's saying, imagine if, you, if the world no longer bought into that Christian nonsense of heaven and hell and an eternal age to come. What if we just lived for today? That's not the way Martin Luther King lived. A few weeks back, we celebrated Martin Luther King Jr. Day. I, I read through his I Have a Dream speech a few weeks back, and, and in that speech, what we see is his dream is of, of reconciliation, of races, and justice, and mercy, was inextricably linked to the hope of the Christian message. Let me read a little bit. Dr. King cried out, I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sun's Of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of what? Brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. And then Dr. King goes to Scripture. He goes to Isaiah chapter 40 um, where the prophet speaks of the day to come when God will make all this happen. He says, I have a dream today. I have a dream that On one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. Isaiah 40 foretells of the day when Christ will return to usher in his true and lasting peace. Dr. King knew that ultimately it was this day ahead that would really bring about the peace that the human soul longs for. And God has planned for that day. And if you are um, brought into his body, you will experience the peace of that day. It's this hope of this future peace to come that drove Dr. King to what? Just wait for that day? Just to bide his time? No, to work, to fight, to make peace today. He has experienced in his own life how the gospel had brought reconciliation between him and other white people, Christians, and they they would share a table together. They prayed together. They worked together for this same common cause. He saw how the cross of Christ breaks down the walls of hostility. We as God's people... um, know this wall-breaking power of the gospel as well. Christians, may you know that though you were once far off, you've been brought near, that Christ himself is our peace, our peace between us, as well as our peace with our creator. He has created one new man out of two, and in his body he has reconciled us to God. May Christ have his way with us this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the work that you've done. We thank you for the costly work of reconciliation that that you have brought us into your body, that you have um, cleansed us and forgiven us, that you have torn down the wall of hostility, that you have killed our hostility between us and our Creator. May we be a people who live out that reality. May the gospel infuse all that we do. May we live with this hope until you return, we pray. Amen.